0: So we've been in this fall membership series. We tend to do a one-year renewable membership um, where we invite people to become members if you're able to give and to serve. And so as part of that, I've been doing some sort of higher level um, sort of vision sermons talking about where our church fits on the wider sort of church landscape or faith landscape. And I know I find that helpful. I know some of you do as well. But I thought today what we would do is just maybe bring it back down because we're also a local community and we are here to encourage each other and support each other. And I thought, especially in light of um, what happened in Colorado Springs last night, I mean, I can't be a gay pastor and not bring that with me to the pulpit. I know we have so many of you in here who, if it doesn't affect you directly, you've got family and friends and kids, and there's just a heaviness that sort of weighs on my heart this morning. Um, And I thought, you know, this is actually a pretty good sermon for that because the story I wanted to tell was one, it's a little bit more of like I would say I would telling it as an allegory to help us remember how we can tend our bodies and our souls as we're heading into the holiday season anyway. And so I think there's some things we can apply regardless of where we're coming from this morning. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start by just telling the story because I feel like one of, our, one of our things as a community, right, is to use the stories that we have and to tell them and to tell them in different lenses um, in ways that are hopefully practical and helpful for us. And so this is a story that's found in the book of Exodus chapter 15. And in this story, it uses three different pictures of water, I think to communicate different bits of wisdom to us. And so this chapter begins with the song of a woman named Miriam. And so I think many of us are familiar with the backdrop to Miriam's song, but what I want to do first is just remember the story together. And so while the story is certainly, it's not a fairy tale, right? I like to start stories this way because it kind of triggers our brains to say, oh, this is a story. So I start by saying, once upon a time, and I might add, in an empire far, far away, <laughs> long, long ago, there was a woman named Miriam. And Miriam's people, the Hebrew people, had been slaves in ancient Egypt, and they had lived for generations under that kind of oppression, under physical violence, under brutality, being forced to make large bricks and buildings. We have some stories where there were whips and different things used by them, by the people who held power over them. And in that space of being an oppressed people, a time came when Miriam's younger brother, Moses, with the help of God, we're told he was able to rise up and to lead a liberation movement that allowed their people to escape from their captors. Right, so the great pharaoh of Egypt, after meeting with Moses several times, after enduring several different plagues, told Moses that his people were free to leave. But then, story as old as time, as soon as he let them go, the Egyptian leaders changed their minds about letting this free labor go without consequence. Right? There's a whole other sermon there that we will stick a pin in and revisit one day. But they changed their mind. They did not want to let them go. And so as Miriam and Moses' people were escaping, the Egyptian army was chasing after them. And if you can imagine with me, this group of people that are heading out, and it's tens of thousands, some say hundreds of thousands of people. You've got children. We've got elderly. We have people who are sick. And so the, this is like a, a slow-moving group of refugees who are fleeing this place with everything that they can possibly carry on their backs. And they're being chased by men in armor and chariots with horses, right? So this is a problem. And this wasn't the only problem that they had, because while they had the chariots and they had the horses and the army chasing them from behind out in front of them, they also had this giant body of water, and that was called the Sea of Reeds. Sometimes we call it the Red Sea. And as they started to approach this giant body of water, they began to despair because there was nowhere to go. And so God told Moses, he said, hold out your hands over that water. And as Moses did that, we're told that the waters began to part so that there was a path through which the refugees could make their way so that they could go across to the other side to safety. Now, whether this is a literal description of an event is unknown. There is a little bit of evidence that there's like a land bridge under a part of what we know as the Red Sea that possibly could be exposed during like a tidal or a storm event. It's a possibility. But I would say regardless of whether this is a factual description or a picture of like what the escape felt like, doesn't impact the story that it tells. Right? The story tells us that God heard the cries of these refugee people in their time of desperation and made a way for them when it seemed like there wasn't a way out. And God rescued them. And when they reached the other side of the water, the army that was chasing after them was overwhelmed by the waves as they crashed back into place. And so Miriam and Moses' people were free. And it's in that moment when they've reached the other side of that sea that we begin Exodus 15, and we have Miriam singing her song of thanks to God for rescuing her people from what was harming them and oppressing them. So if you look on your sheet, the first one is Exodus 15, 1-2. She says, I'll sing to the Lord. They are highly exalted. Both the horse and the driver have been hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. They have become my salvation. Right? And that, that word that's used there for salvation is also sometimes translated as liberation. Right? God has become my liberation, my salvation. The Hebrew word is Yeshua. And so after Miriam's song, as she's there on the edge of the Red Sea, the people, they start to move forward and they go into the desert because they need to get away. And so as they travel, they're looking around for fresh water. And so, after three days of not finding any, they finally come upon a place that has a spring, and this place is called Mara. And this is a great relief for everyone, because everyone was thirsty and they were starting to grow desperate once again. There's only so many days, right, that we can go without fresh water, and that Red Sea they had crossed was salt water. And so, there's rejoicing and relief. And then they go to drink this water in the spring at Mara, and they find out it wasn't good, it was bitter. Just like its name described, Mara means bitter, and so the people grew anxious, and they turned their fear onto their leader Moses, and they said, "What are we going to drink?" They grumbled. This is also, I think, in the uh, in the on your sheet. It says, "Then Moses cried out to God, and God showed him a piece of wood, and he threw it in the water, and the water became fit to drink." It's kind of a weird solution, right? We all know throwing a piece of wood into some water is not going to make that water magically drinkable. But I think this odd detail echoes an earlier biblical theme, right? All the way back in the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2, we have a creation story. And in that story, it says there's a tree of life. And through that tree of life is meant to come the liberation or the salvation of humanity, and then, things that are made of wood in the early scriptures often become either lifelines or they become vessels that hold the presence of God. Right? We saw like Noah's Ark became a vehicle of protection when the waters of chaos and death rose up to cover the ground and to threaten people. The wooden Ark of the Covenant came to hold God's presence. Moses' wooden staff caused miracles and was said to change minds. And then there was a bush out in the middle of Midian, and a fiery essence of the divine was filling the wood of that bush. And so here we have another piece of wood, and it made unclean water drinkable. And that water is transformed, and it gives them enough nourishment that they're then able to move forward. So says, then the people traveled on from the place of the bitter spring, and that chapter ends with a sentence that says, then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. All right, so in this story that's contained in just one chapter, we've got three locations, see that? And then three pictures of water. And it's moving us through this story, right? So first we've got the water of the Sea of Reeds, then we've got the bitter spring of Mara, and then we end here with this refreshing oasis at Elam. Now, water is also used as a metaphor for a few things in the Bible, right? On one hand, it can can represent sort of the primordial chaos of the world. It can represent death, right? It can symbolize things that are sometimes scary or overwhelming for us humans. But on the other hand, water can also be one of the most prevalent metaphors that's used for God in the Hebrew scriptures. The eternal is often described by like a rain that comes down and refreshes their people or as a river that comes and quenches our thirst, or as a spring in a dry and weary land. And so one of the ways that I read this story is through this thread of what's happening with the water. Right, so in that first part, we've got the overwhelming waters of the sea in front of the people, and it's trapping them between drowning and between facing an army. And I think we've all had times in our lives when we believed that none of the options that were in front of us were good. Right, where we felt trapped, confined, hemmed in, maybe oppressed from all sides. We're not able to see that way forward. There's no easy way out. And that could be in a romantic partnership. It could be at work. Maybe somebody you love was struggling, maybe is still struggling. And so I think this part of the story lends us hope that God can take what scares us, what feels chaotic, what threatens us, and what feels hopeless, and God can transform those situations and it doesn't mean that things always go perfectly for us. Right? It doesn't mean that we always get what we want. It doesn't mean things happen the way we would hope they would happen. But it's that we can experience relief and guidance for a way forward through it. And so Miriam got to the other side of what terrified her people, and she sang that song, and she rejoiced because God made a way where it felt like there wasn't a way forward before. And so I think the story's telling us that this God is that God who can make a way. And we all know that sometimes rough patches in life are followed by even more rough patches. I know I've experienced that. And there's times when it feels like we're just kind of wandering around in a desert, like we're searching for kind of something, anything to drink. And like the Hebrew people in the story, in our desperation to find something to quench our thirst, for our emotional thirst and our spiritual thirst, that we sometimes reach for springs that maybe aren't actually that good for us, that aren't healthy for us. I've got just a brief little story about this. When I was in middle school, my family drove out to Yellowstone. And there was one afternoon where my mom um, took my two youngest sisters, I've got two little sisters, and they all went horseback riding. And so my dad and I decided to go and take a hike. um, Just, I think it was probably a five or six mile hike, something in that vicinity, while they did that. And so the hike was, you know, it was pretty challenging, like on the first half, and then it was a little, it was like one of those up and down. but my dad, God bless him, my dad's got Parkinson's and frontal temporal dementia now, but back then he was a pretty athletic man, but his sports were things like racquetball and tennis, he's a really good golfer, bowling, fishing, but I wouldn't say he was what you, you know, like, he's not like a backwoods hiker. And so he took me to this trailhead, I was 14 years old, and we start this hike out with a half a bottle of mint Snapple between us. No water, no snacks, no toilet paper, multi-hour hike, and we were at some altitude, right? I don't know how high up Yellowstone is, but when I was studying out in western China, I was at seven or 8,000 feet, and I know I had to drink three liters of water a day, right? Because you just have to drink more when you're up there, so you just you dehydrate so quickly. And so that first mile or so, you know, it's this really steep hike up the mountain, and like one of those switchback trails. And we'd reached the top, and by the time we'd even gotten to the top, I was done with my Snapple, and I was already just, like, super thirsty. And my dad was like, oh, it'll be fine. This won't take very long. Like, this will be a quick hike. It was not a quick hike. And I remember that just feeling, like, forever. Like, I'm sure it was beautiful, and I love my dad so much. But, like, all I can remember from that day was how thirsty I was that was just like this desperate thirst. And I even have this memory of getting about halfway through, and there being sort of a lake or a pond at the top, and just like begging my dad, like, can we please just like fill up my Snapple bottle with this water? And he's like, he at least knew enough to be like, no, that's probably not a good idea uh, to drink from that lake. But like that feeling of when you're really thirsty, if you've ever been there, you know, it's just kind of overwhelming. You feel it in every part of your body on that physical level, and I know that some of us have felt that on an emotional spiritual level before. I know I have, where it just felt like every part of my body was like, I don't know what else to do. And we're all human, right? And we all have our ways of dealing with our own spiritual and emotional dehydration, right? Sometimes we do things numbing to cope. And trust me, I am like the last one to judge any of those things. I just feel like, gosh, we are all human, and we are doing our best to do what we have to do to get by but I think this middle part of this story can give us some hope and comfort that God can provide tools for survival in those times of desperation and hardship, right? And that we can find sources that will nourish us and that will help us thrive rather than ones that cause us further distress. All right, so in that story, Moses throws that wood into the bitter water, and I think this is meant to say that God can transform some of those sources that we use to cope that aren't bringing us life and can redirect those things to things that are a little bit more nourishing so that we're able to continue moving on to the next part of the journey. And then we come to that third water source in the story. So if the first water source encourages us that God's presence can guide our lives into like increased liberation, and if the second water story then encourages us that God can provide us tools to help us get through these desperate times, the third one encourages us that we can find spaces of rest and restoration and that they exist. Right, the chapter ends with, I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, and they camped there near the water. so Elam I think is implied to be a place of healing and rest. I'm the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam and they camped near the water. That's a place they could camp to catch their breath. It's in that place at the end of this arm of the journey where they're able to get the cool waters that are not salty, they're not bitter, it's sweet and it's healing. So Rabbi Jill Hammer in a little bit of Midrash, which is just commentary, she wrote this. She said, there's a longstanding Shepardic tradition that Miriam was a healer. She says, we might imagine Miriam there singing her songs and dancing her dances, not only by the sea of reeds, but many nights under the trees at Elam, while the people bathed their feet in the cool springs. And we see this invitation to drink from the refreshing waters of the Creator throughout the Hebrew Bible, got another verse here from Isaiah, also a man who lived under oppression under the Babylonian empire, right? These are are like tools for survival. That makes sense. Like most of the Bible was written by people who were under terrible oppression by different empires, Egyptian empire, Babylon, Assyria, Rome, right? So people are providing us tools for when things happen like mass shootings and we're feeling that oppression, Right, here's something I can offer you. Isaiah, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why spend money on what's not bread? Why spend your labor on what doesn't satisfy? Listen, listen to me. Eat what's good. You'll delight in the richest affair. Give ear, come to me, listen, that you may live. All right, it's an invitation. Come, You who are thirsty, come to the waters, come ask for guidance, come ask for rescue, come practice hope, even when it feels like there is no hope to be found, even when it feels like the oppression will never end, come practice hope, practice what nourishes you, practice your self-care, come sit and rest. And I think with the holidays upon us, many of us, including me, I love Advent and I love Christmas, But alongside that, I know there can be a lot of family dynamics that can be challenging. Some of you are not even, like, you've been sort of cut off from your families. And some of you are grieving family and friends who are no longer with us. Some of you have hectic schedules. Maybe you have kids that are in concerts or different things. And I just want us to take this story from Exodus 15 and remind ourselves that in the midst of it all, we can practice that self-care and we can take these moments to just pause and drink deeply of the spirit, we can pause and remember that we are part of a connected universe, that we're not alone. We can just feel the energy of the creator infusing us, even if that's just like taking a moment outside in the middle of you know, a meal that you're having with your family, you're like, I just need a minute. So, <laughs> relatable. Uh, <laughs> For our guided meditation today, sometimes we just do a minute or two of silence, and sometimes we do guided meditation. You certainly don't have to do this, but I invite you to if you'd like to. And I think today I am going to do a little bit more of a guided one than I've done in a while. So what I'd like you to do, if you're game for it, is just make yourself comfortable, take a couple of deep breaths, release any tension that you're feeling in your body, pay attention to sort of like being grounded. In your spot, maybe feel your feet on the ground, feel your seat in the chair there. We're in this space. We're not alone together. Not alone together. Yeah. If you'd like, I'd invite you to imagine this space at Elam. Or if that doesn't work for you, a place of water that is restful for you. And I invite you to pay attention to what's around, like what are the colors, who's there? What's it smell like? What's it sound like? What is your body feeling? Let's take a moment in that space. I invite you to imagine just putting your feet in the cool water. Just imagine the lapping of the small waves over your feet, your legs. Maybe you've got your favorite drink on hand, one that just refreshes you, ice water, whatever it is. Just imagine drinking that in and feeling the relief that that brings. And in this space, if you would like to just ask anything of the divine or the creator, you can just make that need known or just, or just sit there in this space with God. And as you're there, I'm going to just read a couple of verses from Psalm 42. The psalmist says, As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and your breakers have swept over me. And so, Spirit, we just ask that when we're in these places where we're just feeling a little bit thirsty and like maybe we don't even have the energy to find tools for connection with you. But we can say it's just as simple as just finding this space, imagining the waters, imagining your presence there, and then just imagining your love and your presence just there, sort of lapping at our feet like the cold waters would lap us on a hot day in the desert. I ask that your spirit would nudge us maybe when we need some of these times of refreshment, of refueling, that you would remind us that this is one of the tools that we can use if we're feeling just kind of desperately thirsty. We thank you that your presence is available to us and we ask for your comfort this week and in the weeks ahead. Thank you for who you are. Amen.